Lift up your gates that the King of glory might enter. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh, God of the armies of Israel. He is the King of glory. These words are found at the end of Psalm 24. Brothers in Christ, may you please our divine Lord. Uh, there is uh, in Rome near St. John Lateran a very interesting relic. Uh, it was alleged to have been brought to Rome by uh, St. Helen, the mother of Constantine, when she brought back many relics from the Holy Land. Uh, this relic is called the Scala Santa, and it's a marble staircase alleged to be from uh, the Praetorium the, of Pontius Pilate. And if that's the case, of course, it was up that marble staircase that our Lord walked in his uh, passion. Uh, the case is now enclosed uh, with a wooden enclosure. When you get to the top, there's a, a glass uh, covering over uh, p- the top piece of marble uh, where there's a blot that's said to be where our Lord stood in his own blood uh, for the time he was judged uh, by Pontius Pilate. Pilate asked his mouthful, what is truth? And truth itself uh, incarnate was standing there in front of him. Whether it's authentic or not uh, is questionable, uh, but uh, there may be some reason for its authenticity. Certainly at this time of the year, and particularly during Holy Week, the pilgrims line up. There are long lines waiting to go up the Scala Santa on their knees. It's customary to ascend the Scala Santa on your knees and then getting to the top to kiss reverently the glass plate over the place where our Lord is alleged to have stood in his blood. Um, the relic is moving and a very beautiful experience to do it, especially as Passion Tide comes closer toward the end of Lent and Holy Week begins. Uh, But we should remember we have a more authentic relic. We have something far more real, and there's no doubt about it. Uh, As Joyce Kilmer, whom I mentioned before, said, uh, through these lips that utter sin, the King of Glory enters in. We have the great body and blood of Christ himself to give us strength and to purple our mouth with that which saves us. The Holy Eucharist is the sacrament sacrifice in which Jesus Christ, whole and entire, body and blood, soul and divinity, is offered, sacrificed, and contained. How important it is for us to be conscious of this Uh, It's difficult uh, to take for granted what is this precious and marvelous gift that uh, the one who promised not to leave us orphans left with us, uh, the gift of himself. Uh, Frederick II, sometimes called Frederick the Great, mistakenly actually, was the king of Prussia. He was uh, not a respectable person. He was a Freemason probably a homosexual, and he was certainly an atheist. Uh, But he, uh, as Macaulay said, uh, to rob a friend, uh, decided uh, to uh, take over Silesia from Maria 
uh, Therese of Austria. And Silesia was a Catholic province adjacent to both Germany and, and Poland. And he was anxious to see some of the treasures of Silesia. So he marched into a very prominent Catholic church to see a painting, a very important painting that was alleged to be from Titian. And as he walked in with his entourage, he looked around as he walked into this Catholic church and said to one of his generals, you're a Catholic, you didn't genuflect. And he said, well, your majesty, I didn't want to be conspicuous. I thought that might offend you. He said, if I were a Catholic and I believe that was Jesus, I would crawl on my hands and knees up the aisle and prostrate in adoration before him for hours unending. To say the least, this uh, atheist in his admonishment startled and uh, perhaps deeply offended uh, that, that general. But uh, we sometimes don't realize uh, what we're dealing with. Uh, it's extremely important that we keep in mind uh, this reality, this precious gift that was uh, foreshadowed in the manna in the desert and promised in the hills of Galilee, this wonderful gift that was instituted in the Cenacle in Jerusalem that was uh, enacted on Mount Calvary and then in that empty tomb. The Holy Eucharist is this sacrament and sacrifice which is uh, the supreme symbol of God's love for us because it's the continuation of his gift of himself to us. Uh, for true love, as those of you who've been involved in true love on the human level, uh, there's always a requirement. Uh, there's a requirement for presence, there's a requirement for sacrifice, and there's a requirement for union. If love is to be true and complete, it needs those three qualities. And that's what he gave us in the Holy Eucharist. He gave us presence, a sacrifice, and union. It's important, I think, that we keep in mind then uh, what we're dealing with, this precious and magnificent treasure. The Holy Eucharist gives us uh, to be sure, gives us to be sure, uh, the pre-presentation of the dying and rising of Christ, the altar is a table, a table for the Eucharistic banquet. But before that, it's the stone of sacrifice in which the dying and rising of Jesus are made present. And so this altar, which is the supreme symbol of Christ, is indeed both at the same time uh, the place where we're nourished by God's word and we're nourished by the body and blood of our Savior. We, uh, for those who may have ever witnessed a consecration of an altar, it's a beautiful ceremony because an altar is the supreme symbol of Jesus. The altar is the most important part of any Catholic church. It's the icon of Christ himself. Uh, the altar, uh, when it's consecrated, is anointed with chrism, with sacred oil, because Christ means the anointed one, Mashiach in uh, Hebrew, Christos. In Greek, it's the one who is anointed. The altar is incensed, reverently kissed, covered with beautiful draperies, surrounded by lights and flowers. It's because it's the supreme symbol of Christ. Jesus talked about the altar uh, in uh, several times. If you're 
Recently, we heard him say, if you're leaving your gift, bringing your gift to the altar, first leave it in front of the altar, go be reconciled with your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Once he asked rhetorically, which is more important, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Because that's exactly what happens in this marvelous uh, commercium, this marvelous exchange that constitutes the Holy Eucharist. Uh, in the great liturgical movement, the inspiration was taken from Pope St. Pius X, who in a document called Trale Solicitudine talked about the primary and indispensable source of the true Christian spirit is active participation in the sacred liturgy. And um, doesn't active participation doesn't mean uh, moving around or jumping up and down or singing or something, but basically it means internally that we're actively participating in what's going on. And so the altar then is this stone of sacrifice as well as the table of the Eucharistic banquet. And it gives us what uh, the whole Eucharist is. St. Thomas Aquinas says, Oh, uh, uh, marvelous, O sacrum convivium, in co Christus sumitur, recoli tu memoria passionis eus, et nobis datur pinius dat gloriae, that uh, this wonderful and splendid banquet in which Christ is received, the soul is filled with grace, and there is given to us a pledge of future glory. The Holy Eucharist, especially the sacrifice of the Mass, uh, gives us this wonderful coalescence of the future and the past and bringing it into the present. We know that in the past, Christ died. He died once and for all. His death is not repeated at each Mass, but it's represented at each Mass. It's made present again, as though we were there on that hill uh, called Mount Calvary, Golgotha, where a few paces away from the crucifixion is the empty tomb that contained his body for ever so few hours. And we, uh, this brings this present to us, so we are actually there at what's happening. And then, of course, it brings also into the present the future. We know, as we say each Sunday at Mass, he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. But he comes before on the clouds of majesty in heaven, he comes in this sign, this symbol, this sacrament that is a, not only a sign and symbol, but a genuine reality. And so there is a coalescence of past and future into the presence at every single Mass. We can't say enough about the importance then of what the Mass is. The Vatican, Second Vatican Council tells us the Mass makes Christ present, and there are four presences that the Council emphasizes. First, there is the presence of the gathering of the people. Uh, when we assemble for Mass, it's not just a prayer hall where we're going to do something together. No, it's a hierarchical gathering of his people in an orderly and proper way. The people are not just there because they're convoked, they're summoned, and they're exercising in this summons their baptismal and confirmation participation in the one and only priesthood of Christ. Certainly a different way from those who are ordained ministers of Christ, but nonetheless a true participation. That's why those sacraments of priesthood are unrepeatable. 
baptism, confirmation, and holy orders. And so Christ is present in the very gathering because he said so. Where two or three of you are gathered in my name, there I am in your midst. There's another presence of Christ in the priest, the ordained priest, who stands as St. John Paul II would frequently say, in persona Christi, in the person of Christ. And though he's a human being with frailties and sins, as we all have, he is vested in those vestments, not just a sign of Christ, but the supreme representative of Christ as a human being. He, uh, by his being there, makes Christ present. And then Christ is present in his word. We sometimes overlook that. We Sacred scripture, uh, the Second Vatican Council says, is venerated as is the very body of Christ. And Jesus is present always uh, everywhere, but he's also present in a very particular way uh, when scripture is read during the sacred liturgy, particularly at Mass. And this is especially true in the uh, reading of the gospel. That's why this must be read by a priest, an ordained priest or deacon. The gospel reading uh, makes Christ truly present because it contains his ipsissima verba, his very words. Uh, that's why the gospel book is kissed, reverenced at a solemn mass surrounded by lights. Uh, this is a very special presence of Christ. And the words we use, praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Glory to you, O Lord, when the gospel is announced. We must keep in mind this makes Christ present. Obviously, these presences of Christ are inferior to and much different from the supreme presence of Christ in the Holy Eucharist, the transubstantiated presence of Christ, when uh, this marvelous exchange uh, takes place in the sacrifice of the Mass. We, uh, first of all, in Mass, exchange words with God. We talk to him, the priest speaking in our name, and then God talks to us in his uh, inspired word of sacred scripture. But then, most important, we exchange gifts with God. And the exchange of gifts with God is particularly important, forgotten for the most part. Uh, we bring up some bread and wine gifts that God has only given us to begin with, but these are representative, or should be, of our tears, our laughter, our joys, our happiness, our anxieties, our doubts, our questions. The whole uh, thing that is us and uh, what constitutes us, we bring up. And this, these gifts, things God gave us in some sense, uh, but we give them to God with uh, generosity, as little children will bring some dandelions from the lawn to give to mother. And she, they're not very beautiful or extensive, but they come from the children, and mother likes the children, loves them, and so she accepts them. So our gifts, basically worthless, something that God doesn't need or really want, but they come up. But the wonderful thing about these gifts is that our Lord takes them, Jesus takes them, and transforms them into his gift to the Father, and how significant and important that is. Our gifts become ultimately precious, and then these transubstantiated gifts are given back to us, this sacred bread that is his body to nourish us, this holy wine, which is his blood, uh, to make us happy and joyous. Uh, this admirabile commercium is extremely important. And we can misunderstand what the Mass is about unless we realize that's what's happening. Uh, we are, uh, the Mass is not some kind of uh, thing that we contrive. And one of the uh, disadvantages, as uh, 
Pope Benedict said so repeatedly, especially in his uh, Great Spirit of the Liturgy book, is that we don't realize what's going on. And for many people, the Mass is simply a, a kind of a dull television show, and we don't have a remote to control it. Uh, we, the Mass is not that at all. It's not a, a spectacle to uh, behold. The Mass is a very special joining of us to Christ and giving this worship uh, to the Father. I mentioned to someone, Bishop Conley likes to uh, uh, say Mass versus uh, Orient, Orient, Orient his uh, celebration of the Mass. It was the custom to do that always uh, in most of the Latin rite for many years. Although in Rome, in many places, I, as a young priest, offered Mass both ways. The main thing always was facing east. Uh, mass was always uh, the climax uh, of an evening of prayer, a vigil of prayer. And uh, the facing east, always seen in the rising of the sun from the east, uh, the special uh, way in which Christ rose from the dead, the special way in which uh, this symbolizes the Lord. So the idea was always uh, to look to the east, and that's why uh, Mass was uh, generally oriented. Uh, some people foolishly said, well, the priest turned his back on the people. I mentioned that's, say, Pope Benedict said, it's not because he's turning his back on the people. It's any more than an officer leading his troops into battle is turning his back on his troops. Uh, that's not what the priest is doing, but it's a misunderstanding that was uh, unfortunately quite general. At any rate, the Holy Eucharist is uh, then this splendid, magnificent sacrifice, but it, it's more than that. Uh, it is uh, given to us uh, so that we might uh, adore Christ in the Holy Eucharist. There's this magnificent and splendid presence. Uh, it's uh, a wonderful thought that uh, he abides with us, uh, and we cannot uh, really uh, say enough about that precious value. He gave himself to us under these forms of bread and wine, but uh, reserved now for our sick uh, who cannot be with us in the Eucharistic assembly, but also reserved now uh, for our benefit so that uh, his continuous uh, enlightenment of us by his very presence uh, can take place. We uh, might uh, sometimes uh, suspect that um, the adoration of Christ in the Holy Eucharist is sort of an add-on, but it's really a spillover it's a spillover from the. Um, it's a spillover uh, from uh, the Eucharistic uh, celebration, and that's why the tabernacle is uh, so important because it is the continuation of the breaking of the bread, a continuation of the glory and splendor of uh, Christ's continuous and abiding presence uh, among us. Uh, we are very fortunate here in our diocese to have my predecessor, Bishop Flavin, brought them from St. Louis, the Holy Spirit Adoration Sisters. There are currently eight of them there. Uh, he gave up his house, the old Stuart Mansion, so that he could uh, provide uh, a decent convent for them and a suitable chapel where our Lord could be continually adored in the Blessed Sacrament. And uh, it might be interesting for you to know they're with us on this retreat uh, right now, those eight sisters are on their knees praying for us. Uh, 
In addition, of course, I might just mention, by the way, uh, we also have 38 cloistered Carmelite sisters in Agnew uh, out there who are also praying for us at this time on this retreat, accompanying us with their prayers and their devotions. The uh, uh, interesting thing is that uh, some years ago, I was minding my own business when into my office uh, came Monsignor Thorburn with a big box that special delivery from the Nunciature in Washington. Okay, what's in it? So I opened up this box and uh, there was another box inside of it. Inside the first box it said, I have the honor to send this to you from the Holy See. It was signed by the Nuncio. So I opened the second box and there uh, was another letter from the Deputy Secretary of State of the Vatican. Our Holy Father, uh, Pope John Paul II, has written an encyclical called Ecclesia uh, de Eucharistia, the Church from the Eucharist. And he uh, instructs us to send this to you so you have an original copy of the encyclical with the seals and his signature. And he asks that it be kept at the Eucharistic Shrine of Christ the King in your Diocese of Lincoln. So flattered by that, I, we have it there. I didn't, didn't ask for it. The sisters didn't ask for it. They're the envy of all the other uh, sisters of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and uh, so we, I didn't know what to do. I framed it there and sent a nice thank you. Till this day, I have no idea how, when, or why uh, this was sent to us. But it's flattering and beautiful. And I would urge you, there are good English translations of Ecclesia de Eucharistia. I would urge you to, uh, if you're able to, get an English copy and read it because it's uh, deeply and profoundly beautiful. Uh, it's one of the last things that uh, St. John Paul II did before he died. It was dated April 17, 2003, and it was addressed uh, to the bishops, priests, deacons, men and women in consecrated life, and all the faithful laity of the Catholic Church. Uh, the Eucharist, then, is uh, very much uh, the center of the liturgy. And the sacred liturgy, as the Second Vatican Council says, is uh, that action from which the Church draws all her energy and all her grace, and to which all her actions and undertakings are directed. So the liturgy is very important, and the heart of the liturgy, of course, is the Holy Eucharist. So we have to keep in mind, it's not just one of several things, but it's the center of the whole sacramental system. It's required that we uh, esteem, love, and always venerate uh, this precious gift that God has given us. During the Second Vatican Council, there were some enthusiasts or perhaps fanatics who thought we could adjust what the Catholic Church teaches about the sacred liturgy uh, to accommodate those who are not Catholic. Uh, this caused something of an uproar. Uh, most of these people were from Belgium and Holland and uh, uh, irritated a lot of other of the fathers of the council. Uh, they thought instead of transubstantiation, we should say trans-signification. Uh, they had their own philosophical outlook, which was um, in many ways uh, uh, defective, but defective in such a way that it would accommodate their strange beliefs. And this caused 
uh, Pope Paul VI to write an encyclical, uh, not only it's called the Mystery of Faith, Mysterium Fidei, not only to refute uh, this doctrine, but to emphasize the necessity to give to our Lord in the Eucharist that which is given to God alone, which is called Latria. As you may know, technically speaking, uh, the worship that we give to God and only to God is called Latria. The veneration that we give to saints is called Dulia, which is a different, entirely different kind of level, somewhat the same but yet totally different when we're praying to the saints. And because of the special place that the Blessed Virgin Mary has in the saints, uh, the veneration given to her is called Hyperdulia. But Latria, the veneration given to God alone, is what we give uh, to our Lord uh, in the Holy Eucharist. And um, this is importance, and it has sometimes an overtone of evangelization. Let me, I was just talking to somebody this afternoon. Um, I know a, a, a man in uh, St. Louis who was a lawyer, he's a Jew, and uh, he had a law office that wasn't very far from uh, the great basilica, the new cathedral on Linda Boulevard in, in St. Louis. And uh, this Jewish man told me that uh, he, sometimes the law office was pretty turbulent. It was a big practice and a lot of attorneys and uh, all this and that. And so uh, to, at his lunch hour, sometimes just get a relief from it all, he would like to go into the back of the cathedral basilica and just sit there in the quiet and the dark and just get his thoughts together. And uh, sitting there, he, would, he said, I always sat in the shadows way in the back. No one could ever see me. But he noticed something. Uh, first of all, he noticed some of the priests who would go to take the Blessed Sacrament, presumably to the sick. How There was no one in the basilica. There was no, no one could be seen. And they would open the tabernacle, genuflect. When they bring the Blessed Sacrament back, return the Blessed Sacrament the chapel, to the tabernacle, genuflect. He remembered occasionally some people coming in, old ladies and some street people, perhaps, and he, they would genuflect, and they would kneel devoutly. And when the priest would come to bring the Blessed Sacrament in or out, they would kneel down. And he, he said, there's something to this. I, I've got to investigate. The investigation led him to the Catholic faith, and this uh, Jewish man was baptized and practices the faith to this day. Uh, little known uh, apostolic uh, activity, uh, just a simple uh, genuflection. I think that uh, it's important then that we appreciate as profoundly as we can uh, that uh, the, the Eucharist enables us to be joined to Christ in a most uh, profound way, and that uh, this uh, precious and marvelous gift of himself to us continues uh, in the Church down through the centuries, and that we have uh, the great advantage, we pray, at that last moment to receive what is called food for the journey in Latin, viaticum, uh, so that the last time we receive the Holy Eucharist, we will uh, use that until we uh, see him uh, face to face. I mentioned uh, uh, my one of my favorite poem, uh, poets, uh, Joyce Kilmer. The whole family was poetic, I mentioned to someone today uh, somewhere that uh, jo Joyce Kilmer, as I said, was killed in France and his widow 
Eileen Kilmer was also a poet, and uh, she had to raise the children, the family alone after he died uh, fighting for our country. And she had an adolescent boy that was in a state of adolescent rebellion when he was 15 years old, and she wrote him a famous note in rhyme. She said, I know that you are wiser, I see that you are taller, but I liked you better uh, dumber, and I liked you better smaller. (laughs) But Kilmer himself, as many great converts, are entranced by the Holy Eucharist, Probably uh, St. Elizabeth Ann Seton is one of those who said, too, that she uh, went to Mass uh, regularly with these uh, Catholic people. She, as you know, her husband uh, had tuberculosis and went to Italy for relief, but he never even got very far off the boat in Livorno at Leghorn before he was quarantined and then died of his tuberculosis and left her stranded there. So she had to live with this Italian family for several years until she finally was able, they were finally able to get her back to the United States. But she, uh, uh, St. Elizabeth Ann Seton too, said the thing that enthralled her most about uh, the Catholic faith was this presence of Christ in the Holy Eucharist. This was similarly the case with Kilmer, who was a convert. And he wrote this. uh, He loved to spend as much time as he could in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament. And he said, I take my leave with sorrow of him I love so well. I look my last upon his small and radiant prison cell. O happy lamp to serve him with never-ceasing light. O happy flame to tremble forever in his sight. I leave the holy quiet for the loudly human train, and my heart that he has breathed upon is filled with lonely gain. O King, O friend, O Savior, what sore grief can be in all the reddest depths of hell than banishment from thee? But from my window as I speed across the sleeping land, I see the towns and villages wherein his houses stand. Above the roofs I see a cross outlined against the night, and I know that there my Jesus dwells in sacramental might. Dominions kneel before him and powers kiss his feet, yet for me he keeps his weary watch in the turmoil of the street. The King of Kings awaits me wherever I may go. Who am I that he should deign to love and serve me so? Our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, then, uh, should be, for all of us, uh, extremely important. Promised, uh, foretold in the manna in the desert, promised in the hills of Galilee, uh, instituted in the Seneca in Jerusalem, and enacted on the heights of Mount Calvary, and there in that empty tomb. Uh, The wonderful thing of the risen Savior being with us gives us an opportunity uh, to uh, witness, in a sense, with the eyes of faith, his very dying and rising, the fulcrum of human history, that which uh, brought about the salvation of the world. The Holy Eucharist, then, in its importance, uh, goes beyond our power to exaggerate. Uh, He is uh, this wonderful gift of himself continuously and uh, spontaneously until he comes again uh, in the clouds of heaven. In the meantime, he comes to us in these forms of bread and wine. He comes to us to nourish us 
but most of all to love us and to bring us into the warmth of his, uh, of his embrace. That should also inspire us for our duty of evangelization. We should be uh, people who uh, are not ashamed uh, to witness to his abiding presence in our midst, as that uh, shameful general did there with Frederick II. We must be courageous enough to acknowledge what uh, is happening at every Mass, what is happening even now as we pray in his presence, as we look forward uh, to giving him uh, a few moments of our worshipful and uh, loving presence uh, and attention. Uh, what do you see in the Holy Eucharist? Uh, the Curie of ours one time asked an old gentleman who regularly uh, spent some time in his church, what do you do? He said, well, I just look at him and he looks at me. Uh, that is probably enough. St. Francis of Assisi loved to spend the entire night kneeling in front of the Blessed Sacrament, saying over and over again, love is not loved. Love is not loved. I want to fill in for that love that is not loved. So it's simplicity and yet uh, uh, incredible uh, complexity is what God gives us in the sacramental system. And the center, the core of the sacramental system is the Holy Eucharist. We should, I think, uh, never uh, neglect uh, to give that attention to the presence of Christ. We uh, must do our best also uh, to make a good preparation and thanksgiving after our encounter with him in Holy Mass. Uh, in my neighborhood, there, uh, about four hours down from my dad's house, uh, there was a man, a good Catholic man, a friend of ours, but he was a horticulturist, and he had uh, some of the most splendid uh, yard that we had in our neighborhood. It was the envy of everybody. And his lawn, particularly, was like a precious uh, golf green or something. It was absolutely unflawed. And uh, we'd ask him one time, I remember my dad talking, what's the secret? What, what's the secret of it? Well, he said, you have to have a perfectly good seed, and you have to know what you're doing in, in this uh, kind of operation. Uh, but the, the most important thing is the preparation, the preparation. The soil has to be prepared. I have to analyze it chemically to know exactly what kind of uh, fertilizer to put on or not put on. And he said it, it's the soil preparation that's the real secret for a magnificent lawn. Um, in a certain sense, there, the preparation is what's important for the Holy Eucharist, accomplishing within us what Christ wants to accomplish in us. And uh, it's the preparation uh, particularly uh, the preparatory part of the Mass, but also in our own private reading of sacred scripture, our own prayer life, that we open our hearts uh, to this wonderful and precious and splendid gift that is given to us. It's the shortest way to heaven, Pope Pius X said. Uh, there are many ways you can go to heaven. Innocence, but that's for little children. Uh, penitence, uh, that's for only those who are hardy and can take that. Uh, the shortest and quickest way to get to heaven is receiving our Lord in Holy Communion. And this is really a touch of uh, our heavenly destiny when uh, through these lips that utter sin, the King of glory enters in. And so 
uh, as we prepare ourselves uh, for continuous encounter of Christ in the Holy Eucharist, uh, it's perhaps good uh, to put into our own minds uh, the great cry of the psalm. Um, Yahweh, the King of glory, is the one who wants to enter. Just as an aside, uh, in ancient Hebrew, like many ancient languages, written only in consonants, as you know. And uh, it was written backwards. It was written from uh, left to right, but right to left. And it was always written in, con- in consonants only. And you, when you read, you supplied the vowels. And so it was later on when um, like people called the Masoretes, they have the Masoretic text. When this wasn't familiar any longer, they didn't know what vowels to put in. They designed a system of vowels to insert, but they didn't want to insert it in the text itself. So they had these little diacritical marks above and below uh, the uh, the consonants of the language, and so that's why. Uh, and because uh, the name, the sacred name, the tetragram that God said to Abraham. Uh, Yahweh, I am who am, uh, was so sacred, it was never said, it was never used. And so it would be uh, a blasphemy to use it, uh, anyone else to say, I am who am. So they always, when the word Yahweh came up, they always used Adonai, Lord. But And so the Masoretes put in the vowels for Adonai with the consonants of Yahweh. And that's how he got mistaken words like Jehovah which is an artificial word. It's one, the vowels of one word and the consonants of another. Uh, but the, the, the text was extremely important. And as you know, only once a year on Yom Kippur, the, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. Never, other, weren't allowed to go into it. Other, no one on the other time. The Holy of Holies, they had the holy place in the temple where there was the altar of incense and other things. But then there was another enclosed veil, and that was the Holy of Holies. Originally, the only thing in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant, but the Ark of the Covenant was captured and destroyed or lost long ago, and the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the tables of the, the stone tables of the tablets of the Ten Commandments, and contained also a jar of manna and the famous rod of Aaron. But it was long gone at the time of Christ, but it, still they kept the Holy of Holies. And every year in Yom Kippur, the high priest would go in with his bucket of goat, goat's blood. They would uh, kill a goat and sacrifice. And, and he would walk in and through the Holy of Holies curtain and whisper the name, Yahweh, I am who am. And that was the only time. Otherwise, it was absolutely forbidden. And uh, we have the great I am uh, section in the Gospel according to St. John, where our Lord used that name uh, before Abraham came to be. Yahweh, I am. And remember what happened. They picked up stones to throw at him. And he said, I've done a lot of good things here. Why are you stoning me? We're not stoning you for any of your good things. We're stoning you because you, being a man, are making yourself to be God. It was a blasphemy to use Yahweh. But uh, this uh, Yahweh, the one who called himself I am who am, is the one who comes to us. Uh, through those lips that utter sin. And so we think of the Holy Eucharist, uh, think of the cry of the psalm. Um, Lift up your gates so the King of glory can enter. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh, God of the armies of Israel. 
He is the King of glory. Amen.